0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those of you joining us from Asia, and welcome to the 2022 Bloomberg Emerging Market fixed income forum, our annual gathering of industry experts and leading voices across the asset class. For those of you that don't know me, I am Damien Sassauer, I'm the chief emerging market fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, based here at our New York headquarters at 731 Lexington Avenue. Um, and so we have a slew of incredible speakers on today's uh, docket. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. and. I have the privilege of introducing our first panel assessing the impact of the U.S. recession on emerging market fixed income. Uh, joining us here are uh, Claudio Erogium, uh, Bank of America LADAM strategist, fixed income. Cesar Majri, head of EM cross asset strategy at Goldman Sass. Luis Agones, um, head of global macro research at JP Morgan. Win Finn, uh, head of global FX strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. I committed all this to memory and of course Uh, Dirk Willer, Managing Director, uh, Global Head of Macro Asset Allocation and Emerging Market Fixed Income at Citi. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Let's get right into it. I mean, central banks chasing uh, inflationary developments, uh, running out of good policy options and intensifying asset price uh, volatility. Is common in emerging markets, but today, gentlemen, we're talking about the U.S. Federal Reserve, <laughs> and so you know, you know, obviously, this policy uncertainty is fueling uh, adverse spillover into high-beta asset classes, emerging markets being one of them. Um, my question for you, gentlemen, is: the Fed put truly dead? I mean, that seems to be the way markets are operating here. I mean, really, what would it take for the Fed? to step back in uh begin backstopping asset prices i mean is there a level on equities or spreads where you think the fed might uh take a little bit more of an easing or shall i say dovish bias to its hawkish rhetoric let's begin with you luis
2: thanks for the invitation uh, damian you know many market participants may actually wish that the fed you know targeted the s&p 500 index but uh, the reality is that it doesn't and uh, even though we have seen a 21% decline year to date, the reality is that you know, when you compare that to the 20% increase in 2022, sorry, last year, uh, 16% increase the year prior 2020, 2020, uh, it's probably not, there's no you know, wealth effect for the Fed to be too concerned about just yet. Uh, clearly at this stage, you know, it is uh, focusing on bringing inflation lower. I think that, that there's a recognition that it probably needs to engineer some uh, growth slowdown hopefully avoiding recession, but maybe recession is needed here. And uh, so the indicators that it's gonna be focusing on are more on the macro side rather than the mar- market side. So uh, particularly labor markets and certainly consumer uh, confidence and the like. So uh, I mean, as much as markets would want to see, know that you know at some point, uh, if markets continue to cave in, uh, the Fed uh, uh, pushes the brakes uh, on its tightening, I don't think we're nowhere near uh, that level just yet.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. sir. please, you know, do you have anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, I would broadly agree that we're, we're probably quite a ways away from something that looks like a Fed put, but but obviously the question, um, you know, sort of, I'll ask the other question, which is what what was the Fed put? What is the Fed put? I mean, look, we're, we, we were in a place where front-end rates were anchored very, very low. We had very low inflation for a, a long time, and so incremental equity weakness during that period was a was a you know a strong tightening of financial conditions that would in a way spook the fed of uh, things getting too tight you know in the previous sort of sort of era we're very far away you know from that given where inflation is so the short answer is i agree i think we're quite a ways away in terms of asset prices we could easily see 3500 on the s&p uh, our, our uh, fixed income strategists here in the us think high yield spreads can go can go above 600 you know, that's still quite a move you should expect to see without the Fed stepping in. Ultimately, we're in a period of high inflation. You need to see inflation coming down. That to me is, of course, going to be the, the catalyst for the Fed to change tone, for markets to change tone as well. I don't think the Fed would allow things to, you know, get even hotter uh, or support the equity markets anytime soon.
1: Well, I mean, Caesar. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think the one thing that the Fed managed, mentioned in this May minutes was, you know, some of the stress it may. Quite frankly, place on the plumbing, right? On you know liquidity in certain markets, certain aspects of the fixed income markets. Maybe those outside of you know the emerging market landscape per se. But nevertheless, the spillover is there. Dirk, I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on the Fed? Put on the Fed's um, commitment to tightening uh, interest rates in the face of rising inflation. Yeah, let me just leave you with,
3: with two thoughts on the topic. The first one is that I'm public. You know, basically in charge of avoiding recessions, um, one of his two mandates, but he more or less promised us a recession. Right? He sort of says, yeah, maybe we'll avoid it. could be a softish landing, not a soft landing, a softish landing. So he's promising us a recession. And that comes from Herker makes it pretty likely. And the, the, the other issue, which I think goes in the same direction, is if the Fed indeed were to create a recession, that's almost part, you know, of the normal Fed behavior, right? Basically, every second Fed uh, creates a recession. If you let inflation um, run, you're the worst Fed since the 70s, right? So it, it seems pretty clear which way you you have to lean um, when you are running the Fed right now. And I think that's the way they're leaning. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no put whatsoever. It used to be already in play when the market was down 10% or something like that. So this time it, it's it's much, much lower. We don't know where it is. It depends also on the speed by which we fall. And as you point out, it depends on the plumbing. So I think if really there's a fear that the plumbing breaks, um, then we can discuss. Uh, But of course at this stage we seem somewhat far away from such a point and therefore I agree with the earlier panelists that unfortunately we shouldn't necessarily bet on the Fed to bail us out at this moment.
1: And I think you make a great point. You know, this can end in a number of different ways, right? I mean, the economy can prove resilience um, and basically it can adjust to a higher inflation or higher interest rates without plunging us into recession or it can basically result in perhaps a recession or even worse, it could result in a period of very high inflation where the Fed continues to chase and the economy proves, you know, sort of resilient, but not really, Claudio. I'm wondering if you could just weigh in here on the impact certainly that the Fed is having not just on you know emerging markets but Latin America more specifically.
4: Yes yeah, sure. thank you very much for the invitation. I, I think the Fed is is really you can approach the Fed question um, from a normative or from a positive point of view. Probably from a normative point of view it's, uh, it's somewhat easier uh, in terms of what the Fed should do. In terms of what the Fed is going to do uh, to be honest it has been very difficult to understand the reaction function of the Fed lately. Um, for the first, I uh, mean, for starters, the Fed effectively can control the whole term structure of interest rates today. Can affect any tenor of the term structure at will, uh, given the the size of the balance sheet. And they have chosen not to be that aggressive on the long end of the curve relative to the front end. Uh, clearly, that has to do with the potential impact on financial conditions. So, to, to some extent, they have removed the Fed put, but not as much as what they could have done in, in, in the first place. I think to be honest, um, the question here is how persistent, not only when inflation will peak, which has been, I mean, we've, we've been called the peak in inflation, everybody for the last 12 months, uh, just to realize that inflation keeps moving higher everywhere, but uh, how persistent inflation will be and, and, and how non-linear inflation expectations dynamic can be if inflation, realizing inflation remains persistent. So that's, I think the main, uh, challenge for the Fed. They cannot rely on inflation expectations to remain well anchored um, because if they remain too much behind the curve in terms of a policy normalization, they run the risk of having to do too much too late. Uh, and ironically, they're just trading off a correction in asset prices today versus a bigger correction in asset prices in the future. So, I think Latam, to your point, has been impacted already somewhat. Uh, uh, most of the central banks have been um, uh, reacting earlier uh, to inflation dynamics because they don't have the luxury of just claiming that inflation is transitory and driven mostly by supply side uh, dynamics. But, um, but in any case, if the Fed continue hiking even beyond what is currently priced in because inflation does not converge to reasonable levels. Uh, probably there will be more further contamination into emerging markets and central banks will have to do more.
1: You know, I mean, what's interesting this time around, gentlemen, I mean, for the better part of the last 10, 15 years, we've operated under the auspice that, you know, the major, you know, call it G3, G4 central banks really kind of move in lobster that they're talking to each other, that they're, they're working together. I think what's really interesting when this time around, um, there's some divergence, certainly with the Bank of Japan, you know, and I know you've written specifically to this topic, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, you know, if the Fed is indeed going to push on this pedal, and continue to fight inflation by raising interest rates, just how long can Japan hold out? And what is that divergence, that impact? What's, what, what is the knock-on effect to emerging markets, specifically the Asian bloc?
5: Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on this uh, very distinguished panel, so so thanks for inviting me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, in, the, in FX markets, it's really, all the talk's really been about the Bank of Japan and the yen, um, and it does stand out. Um, now, the thing I would point out is that basically, Japan is finally, the policymakers in Japan are finally getting the two things they wanted for the past two decades. And that's a weak yen and higher inflation. So the feeling uh, I get from sort of reading the tea leaves and, and looking at the policymakers is that they, they don't want to pull the plug too early. If they shift out of this and even give any kind of hint of removing stimulus, then I think the fear is that the dollar yen could fall 10, 15, 20 big figures. Right? It's, it's anyone's guess. But it would be a knee-jerk reaction to take the yen stronger. And I think they're afraid of doing that. Um, you know this early you know obviously the, the amazing thing about Japan is it does stand out in a sense that uh, inflation core inflation is still really, really low. I mean it's high compared to the deflationary conditions they've had you know since the late 80s, early 90s but you know we're not talking about you know eight point nine percent headline, six percent core, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know we're talking about uh, headline in the twos core, you know under one percent. so it, it's, it's it's I can see why they are being cautious. Um, what does it mean? well, the monetary policy divergence story, I think it's driving a lot of the FX markets. So one of the major drivers, and that's obviously dollar yen is the, is the, the main focus uh, of trade. But as uh, as I think most of our panelists know, Asia in particular has been very uh, reluctant to hike rates. Um, in fact, we've the People's Bank of China actually continue to ease. But for the most part, Asia has been reluctant to, uh, to raise rates. And so I think there's, a, there's a, there'll be a tendency for those currencies to weaken if, if this reluctance sort of carries over. Um, it, it's very striking to what we've seen in say in Eastern Europe and Latin America where the, where the countries have all hiked quite aggressively, uh, so it stands out. Uh, obviously, China, we can
1: talk about China later, but that's sort of the 800-pound the, the, the gorilla in the room. You know, Winn, you, you mentioned a really great point, and it takes me to my next question. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, inflation, the inflationary impulse has been, you know, far less acute in Asia, right? I mean, and by function of that, you haven't seen countries like, you know, Malaysia just hiked, but Indonesia, for example, Thailand, you know you know, inflation just hasn't been as strong and hasn't forced our central bank's hand. I mean, historically, as we all know, gentlemen, EM central banks have followed the Fed with a lag, yet this time is notably different. And you know where I'm referring to, Brazil, Czech Republic, Chile. You know, Luis, you know, talk to me. As we look to the second half, do you see some of the more restrictive emerging market central banks, the ones that have tightened the most, having some runway to perhaps inject a bit of stimulus if their economies roll over and, plunge into recession, or is that more of a
2: 2023 story? Unfortunately not for the second half of next year, for this year, and maybe not even in 2023. Uh, And this is just because inflation is still running away from, you know, even those central banks that you mentioned that have been starting uh, tightening earlier and more, you know, proactive and more aggressive, not waiting for the Fed, and, you know, we're all until recently praising them for not being, you know, caught sleeping at the wheel uh, this time around. But, hey, you know, inflation continues to surprise on the upside. It's not anchored yet, eh, and uh, and there's more tightening to be seen. Clearly, we do detect a lot of uh, uh, fatigue, let's say hiking fatigue in many of these central banks. But uh, we don't think that they have uh, room to cut in the second half of this year. Uh, we do have some forecasts, you know, in, uh, in C in Czech Republic, and a couple of uh, Latin central banks uh, to be cutting next year eh, on, the, on the economic side. Uh, but on, on the strategy side, to be honest, we're not... Uh, we're still recommending, you know, one-year one-year payers in many of these countries. And again, it is the fact that inflation is not yet anchored. The moment that we start to see inflation peaking and to have some disinflation trend clearly in place, maybe they can we can start entertaining the possibility of rate cuts. But uh, for the time being, I think that they're going to be, uh, you know, with their hands tied.
1: Well, Caesar, I know this is something you've absolutely written to, you know, I mean, and, and the fact is you're right. I mean, you know, anyone who tried to put receivers on in Brazil and Chile got kind of rolled over here. So, you know, is that really right? I mean, is it really an environment where, you know, we can't even think about receiving, we need to be paying in the front end of many of these curves? Or is it more, you know, flatteners? I mean, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are just in terms of curve shape and how, you know, some of these central banks and and, and certainly their, you know, you know, central bank expectations in the market, how that's kind of flowing through and, you know, how investors should be positioning amid it.
0: Yeah, look, I think when you look across the broad EM asset class kind of complex, um, the one big opportunity coming into this year was local rates, right? For all the reasons you mentioned about the cycle being, you know, disjointed, and everybody was waiting for that time to just, you know, receive. And it's worked in very short little bursts, but it basically obviously has not worked, you know, uh, over the balance of this year. And as far as we can see it, you know, given where inflation is, it's probably still not the time to put those on. Interesting, in the past few days, you've finally seen oil come down. Maybe there's some demand destruction. So maybe like, you know, you you, you could actually see headline inflation, you know, declining. Um, But I would actually, in a way, change the narrative a little bit. Meaning, I think, again, coming into this year, we are all, you know, enamored by uh, the early, you know, hikers of VM. I think a lot of that rate differential cushion is behind us. Uh, I mean, again, if you look at FX, EMFX was very weak last year, like let's say 8% on average down. In the first quarter of this year, with the euro weaker, EM currencies were actually stronger. I think that was a lot of the outperformance that you sort of got paid for that rate differential. But today, if you look at sort of three-year rates versus policy rates, you have a steeper curve in the US. You're pricing more Fed action than an EM. That is the signal that I tend to look at in terms of how much buffer we have across the local rates complex. And as I said, that that's pretty much eroded. So the conclusion is, I still think down the line, receivers are the trade. That's where the premium has built up over the course of the past cycle, you know, too early to do so. So frankly, we're sort of on the sidelines um, in that, in that space at the time being,
1: you know, I mean, Claudio, I have to ask you, I mean, these two of these markets, Brazil and Chile are right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. And so for me, you know, if you just look at Chile, I mean, I think, you know, many, if you just listen to the markets, I think that's the way uh, that should be the very first shoe to drop in terms of an emerging, a major emerging market economy you know, kind of slipping into recession. You know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What are you seeing or what are you hearing on the grounds in some of these countries? You know, how bad are things? And, you know, how much longer can some of these local central banks hold out without, you know, taking direct action and really turning the other way and getting a little bit more dovish? Yeah,
4: I mean, Chile and Brazil are probably uh, the ones that were more aggressive on the hiking side, but, but uh, the, the, Political dynamics are somewhat different, so we have elections coming in Brazil. So uh, um, a big if if uh, Lula wins or Bolsonaro wins, um, and what happens next. Um, in the case of Chile, we have the still the the risk of uh, of the constitution. Uh, but when you talk to the locals in Chile, in particular, and when you talk to the central bank, they're really concerned about a, a, a big slowdown in economic activity. And when you take a look at the curves, as, uh, as Luis was uh, pointing out, uh, you have a, a, a lot of cuts pricing in too fast, uh, which means that you're going to be cutting interest rates when inflation is still too high. And inflation has surprised in the last 18 months across every single country, 70% of the time on the upside, which means that we clearly do not understand what's going on in terms of inflation dynamics, starting with the central banks. So um, the, the, the commonsensical thing to do would be to be really, really careful um, and conservative in terms of starting to cut interest rate. The last thing you want is to cut interest rates and then see that inflation is way more persistent than what you thought, and then having to, to backtrack on that. Um, Hiking interest rates and three, four months later starting to cut interest rates doesn't make any sense to me. Um, So we've been paying rates or or recommending flatteners uh, throughout the year. Um, We've been hitting all the targets. And now we are also, as as Cesar mentioned, uh, kind of on the sideline, like the perception is it's too early to receive too late to pay. Um, But if you push me, I pay. (laughs)
1: Well done. Um, Dirk, you know, I have to ask you your thoughts. You know, I mean, and especially look, I mean, you know, some of your work on financial conditions, you know, I mean, speaks for itself. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, it it, it gets very hard given the environment that I've lived through for the past 20 years to think that a central bank is really going to keep their foot on the brakes. When you know people have their hands up in the air, kind of screaming for you know helicopter money, so to speak, and now that they're a little bit used to it and they've had a taste of it, um, it gets that much more challenging. You know, I'm just curious. You know, is that really the right way to be looking at this? That you know, I guess emerging market central banks are not gonna turn the other way. They've kind of got their their hands cuffed here a little bit, and you know, their domestic economies, even if they have to suffer, they're gonna go through some considerable pain. Here, is that really the environment we're heading into?
3: Yeah, I would say from a global macro point of view, it's never fun to receive when U.S. rates still go straight up, right? I mean, it, um, it's, it's, it's a tougher trade. Having said that, in the last Fed hiking cycle, some central banks were able to diverge and uh, to from the Fed. And there were two conditions, really. The first condition you already laid out, right, they had to pre-hike a lot before the Fed. Um, and the second condition is you need a very weak dollar. If you get both of those, you know, you have a shot that you can decouple. Obviously, only if your inflation numbers start to look better. Now, inflation in EM, it's actually not that different from the U.S., but it has an even higher weight, as you know, of course, for energy and softs, right? So you need really oil to come off. And so it will be very interesting to see how far the current pullback uh, will take us. And then softs are obviously harder to forecast, I feel, but uh, but certainly they have a big energy component too. And um, if oil were done going up, maybe there's some hope for softs as well. In spite of all the various um, Ukraine, uh, Russia, different stories, and then maybe you can start to consider um, if there's something to do um, on the receiving side. Again, we are we are quite cautious. We have actually we have um, a steepener Brazil partly because um, we want to have some protection against the election and against rising U.S. rates and against fiscal slippage into the election. Um, But it's not even neutral, so it's 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 basically a a receiver with 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 a partial a partial hedge against it. Um that, that screens are to us the best on emerging markets. If you have to be anywhere, I think it's probably Brazil. But um yeah, cautiously, I mean I, I broadly think you really have to have a pretty strong view that commodities are, are done um before one really uh, receives much more aggressively.
1: And this takes us full circle back to you and and certainly about back to those Asian uh to the Asian block, right? Because you know, inflation has remained relatively suppressed, I mean, certainly relatively to their emerging market peers. I mean, if we are indeed thinking that, you know, central banks are going to have to tighten in Asia, which ones come to mind? Which ones are going to be able to go more aggressively than others? I mean, Indonesia's done a hell of a job of not having to move yet. Thailand has its other issues. You know, is it the Philippines? I mean, where should we be looking if we are looking to see central banks kind of tighten conditions, uh, you know, over the second half of this year? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. I think I, I would add that one of the, I think one of the reasons why the Asian central banks have been
5: so dovish, is I mentioned, the 800 pound grill in the room, China. China is such a driver of regional trade and activity. And as you know, the lockdown, the, the zero COVID zero policy, the ensuing lockdown, it, it's really wreaked havoc on supply chains, on growth forecasts, you know, activity. So I can understand why they're being a bit more dovish. I would say that actually the most hawkish uh, so far has been Singapore, monetary authority of Singapore. They've tightened, I believe in the past three or four meetings. Um, we've got the Philippines starting. We had, I think, Malaysia starting. Korea is actually, actually probably the next aggressive. Taiwan, Taiwan just teed up. Um, but, you know, compared to what we've seen in Latin America and Eastern, Eastern Europe, it's been way, 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 way uh, uh, much more dovish. Um, at some point, uh, you know, it may come back to bite them. You know, the currencies have held in so far. But, uh, you know, if, they, if the currencies really start to go, or may perhaps follow the yen, uh, you know, sort of weaker, uh, then we may have to see a stronger response. Uh, we're also, I think the policy makers are also hoping for you know, more clarity uh, on the Chinese outlook. They keep promising more stimulus, aggressive stimulus. Um, but it's pretty clear that the 5.5% target growth target for this year is going to be missed by a long shot. Uh, and yet we have not seen uh, really aggressive action yet from the PBOC.
1: Uh, so that's something I think that the Asian central banks are also sort of waiting on to see. You know, Wynn, I mean, what's interesting, you've mentioned China here, and, you know, um, and within the context of what you had mentioned previously about the Japanese yen, I mean, if you look at yuan yen, I mean, breaking to what, the highest since 1993, clearly, you know, there's something going on there. You know, it's going to take quite a bit, I think, to knock King Dollar off its pedestal. But nevertheless, it sounds like from all of you gentlemen, you know, that's kind of what we're waiting on. We need to see some sort of, you know, capitulation on the FX side for EM to catch some wind you know we all know that non-dollar debt comprises you know half of the call it 60 trillion dollar universe of benchmark eligible investable global debt not just emerging markets you know what needs to happen Luis if I may start with you what needs to happen for you know hard currency dollar investors you know I mean To reach into their pockets and start moving their money offshore into, you know, non-dollar denominated debt. I mean, is it going to be, you know, some real evidence of, you know, dollar depreciation? And and what will that evidence even look like?
2: What is interesting is that in the first half of this year, uh, we actually saw the outperformance of EM currencies, right? EMFX in relative terms, Uh, EMFX is down four percent year to date, uh, while uh, local currency bonds were down, you know, give or take 12 percent. And hard currency there was down 19%. So relative terms, currency did well, but this did not entice uh, uh, investors to come into local markets for a good reason. All, all the stuff that we've been discussing here, which is inflation not yet anchor, central banks is still having to tighten. So, you know, uh, EMFX alone was not uh, enough to to entice this. To be honest, uh, going forward, you know, what we need is probably two things, right? Clarity, maybe a peak of U.S. inflation and clarity about the Fed's intentions to begin with. And second, EM inflation peaking, and some sense that EM central banks, the tightening cycle is uh, is nearly done. Only then, I think investors may feel more comfortable starting to come back to uh, uh, EM uh, uh, local markets. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, I, I agree with uh, some of the things that were said before. Uh, These are performance for sure of currencies uh, is uh, uh, that was driven by uh, real policy rates that were higher. In uh, emerging markets compared to uh, developed markets, that uh, rate real rate differential is going to compress and maybe disappear probably in the coming months because you know as DM central banks are going to be tightening a lot more aggressive uh, than expected, so you know this uh, uh, real rate differential is going to uh, evaporate and uh, and then you know we're back to uh, you know whatever justified to this performance earlier in the year uh, is going to is going to fade. So I don't think that we're there yet uh, uh, in terms of, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for EM local markets. You know, it is possible that some of these countries that we're discussing, particularly Latin America, uh, maybe, you know, you start to see the possibility of cuts uh, uh, earlier than in EMEA, certainly in Asia, which is a laggard in this process. Uh, but uh, again, maybe this is something to be discussing during the course of 2023, certainly not now.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and that takes us to, I mean, CESAR, that takes us to the emerging market carry trade, right? I mean, let's be clear, you know, Win just mentioned it, the Taiwan Central Bank has moved off the bench, you know, looking ahead, I mean, here's an interesting statistic for you, right? Four of 21 emerging market currencies, just four are positive relative to the dollar this year. And I ran this yesterday, so it might be even worse than that, but 16 are actually up versus the euro and 19 are positive in yen terms. My question for you is... What funding currency should we be looking at going forward when looking at trying to carry and extract that, what, whatever carry is left, obviously, on a real-rate basis in emerging markets? I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts there as we look to the second half.
0: Yeah, well, one, look, I think they're, they're maybe not in the super short term, but I do think there will be an opportunity to short the dollar. The dollar looks expensive on most you know on most metrics. And I would think, in, again, in the short term, so tactical, we'll call it three to six months, you can sort of think of the dollar smile, right? So right now we're clearly in the left side of that smile with recession risks, we'll be there for some time. So EM yeah, probably can outperform against, you know, Euro uh, potentially in that, in that environment, particularly if commodity prices hold up. Although again, if they reverse, EM is probably on the losing end of, of, that, of that trade. But as we look into 2023, with, you know, it's too early for that conversation. But again, given how expensive the dollar is, you'll probably find some medium area where, where, you know, that smile where the dollar can the dollar can come down. But I think that to me the broader point on this is, is kind of two is kind of twofold. The first is You know, a lot of these dollar conversations talk about the last 10 years and EM being, you know, kind of the losing trade uh, over the past decade. I totally disagree with that. Again, I think it's really the U.S. has beaten everybody else. That's very true in currency space and in equity space, for example. EM has indeed outperformed global peers, non-U.S. global peers, as you mentioned, you know, this year. But that's actually quite true for for the past decade. So the point is the thing that will bring that about dollar weakness, I think, needs to come from the U.S., could be regulation, could be just a lower, you know, structural growth rate uh, and so on. And then the last thing I just quickly say is, again, we we tend to focus on, you know, dollar dynamics, but weak EM growth has contributed to a stronger dollar over the past decade. I'm not so sure that changes over the next five years. So as, as much as I think you can find that middle part of the dollar smile at some point over the next 12 months, I would kind of push most EM focused investors to think about the next five years Is that going to be a better growth environment than the five years prior to COVID? I I would be somewhat skeptical, particularly given, you know, China's, you know, kind of bumpy, bumpy slowdown. So for me, it's medium term. You can express in dollar shorts. Longer term, I remain a little bit more skeptical.
1: Derek Willer, funding currency diversification. I mean, right in your wheelhouse, sir. Talk to me. I mean, is that, is that the way to look at investing in emerging markets is to diversify your funding currency base? I mean, is that, is that really what, what, what we're alluding to here? And is that the right way forward?
3: Yeah, let me just make one quick comment on the big dollar uh, because I, th- there have been, you know, I guess, many papers written comparing the current situation to 2000, right? And um, I still remember when, when the NASDAQ peaked in 2000, people started to sell dollars left, right and center and it just didn't work. It took almost two years before the dollar finally um, collapsed. But the difference is that this time, only the U.S. equity market was in a bubble, according to our metrics. And the rest of the world was not. In in 2000, the bubble was around telcos. Every equity market had a telco, so therefore everyone became bubbly in the end. This time it was a very U.S.-specific phenomenon. So therefore, I mean, I I can definitely see the case that um, after all these inflows into the U.S., with the deflating bubble only in the US you get eventually the dollar weakness trade. I just think most likely just like in 2000 you again need a more dovish Fed to make it happen and that's of course not um, on the agenda in the short term for sure. So I think one can be patient with a big short dollar trade. For for the carry trade to work, um, our specification of the carry trade is basically you know like everyone else we, we sort of rank uh, across currencies by carry volatility adjusted and then you also i think have to adjust um, when you construct the basket you also need to adjust the for the volatility of the various components and then you get a carry basket that performs pretty well throughout the cycles and you then you obviously have em on the short side as well not just on the long side you have low yielding em Um, the main issue is of course when volatility really spikes You know, no matter how you construct your carry basket, it will not provide great returns, right? Volatility spiking is the arch enemy of a carry. Um, What I would say though is that fixed income volatility, which was, you know, the main volatility spike that you observed actually much more than, than what we saw in equities. So fixed income volatility in the U.S. usually is extremely severe at the start of the Fed cycle when the market is trying to get to grips with how aggressive will the Fed be, how far can they go and so forth. Once the Fed settles down on a cycle, usually volatility comes off in the US fixed income market. And then maybe these carry strategies can perform quite decently. Again, you would end up in our our version with EM on the short side as well, but certainly you can collect some of the carry. Yes, that's our hope.
1: And Claudio, I mean, obviously look, I mean, you know, if I, of the, at least in dollar terms, the four currencies, probably now three after uh, Gustavo Petro was elected in Colombia, three of the positive currencies were all Latin America based, right? So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, you know, about the dynamics in not just Latin America, the broad EM picture, you know, where does, you know, LATAM as a region kind of stack up from a carry perspective, you know, what are you thinking, what's your thinking also on, in terms of trade, right? I mean, many of the Latin American uh, economies are commodity producers, the commodity exporters, but it doesn't seem as if they're getting the full benefit this time around. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts there.
4: Yeah I mean you can approach the question uh, uh, from different angles. First of all the, the term of trade story I think generated a lot of confusion for Latin America because the way we think about it is, um, is, is the world was a stagflationary shock uh, for Latin America. When you go country by country it is not true that it was a positive term of trade shock for every country. For instance, Chile and Peru uh, export metals but import oil and oil went up much more than, than copper or other metals. So for them, it was effectively a negative term of trade shock. The only countries that had a, a net positive term of trade shock uh, were Colombia and arguably Brazil, but to a less extent because of increasing the price of fertilizers too. Uh, but most of the countries, uh, most not all the countries um, experienced much higher inflation due to that. So central bank had to rush to hike interest rates. That's why we, we tend to think of, the, of that shock as a, as a stagflationary shock that it um, has nothing to do with improvement in the term of trade that we had at the beginning of, of the China boom. When, when China was growing uh, um, double digits and, and, and was uh, coming into the world joining WTO and and basically exporting deflation to the rest of the world because of the massive increase in, in labor supply. The 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 China structural trade is gone forever. It has nothing to do with COVID or or anything. It's gone structurally China slowed down. The 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 model of China has changed. Um, and for Latin America, which is most for the most part a bunch of commodity exporters with relatively low saving rates. We had the worst possible composition of of global backdrop, which is slowing down in China and high rates in the US. So in that environment, thinking about carry um, risk adjusted doesn't look like great. Uh, Independently of uh, how high interest rate differential could be for some countries, I think until I think Luis mentioned that until we see inflation peaking and 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 significantly slowing down in the US and 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 the rest of uh, em countries and the fed um, signals enough of his reaction function to call the peaking US rates it's going to be extremely difficult to trade em because on top of that i don't see where em growth is going to come from from a more structured point of view so or let me put it differently. I don't think we have enough average premium in us in asset prices to justify the relatively meager growth story for the
1: next ten years. Well, Claudio, I mean, this takes us full circle. I mean, it began with China, and now when we're back to you with China, I mean, you know, look, many many analysts have been calling for the PBOC to inject stimulus, to do something about the housing crisis, to clarify on transparency rules here with the U.S. with with big tech, everything, Um, you know, and here we are, you know, and and Claudia mentioning that, you know, we can't rely on China to, you know, feel the coffers of, you know, the the broader emerging market complex. Do you agree with that? I mean, is China able to kind of sustain its sort of, let's call it pseudo hawkish policy in the face of all that's going on interest rate differentials with the U.S., etc., or do we feel that perhaps there's going to be some large injections coming through? They're going to, you know, look to basically reaccelerate growth with emerging market a potential beneficiary as we looked at 2023 is that something you know we can look to perhaps or is that uh, a pipe dream <laughs> well I have to agree that that there seems
5: to be something structurally has shifted in China because in the past anytime you saw a hint of slow growth they just you know step on the gas pedal you know huge injections of liquidity uh directed lending etc and we're not seeing that yet and we know before the pandemic that President Xi was, was undertaking all these reforms, the, the common prosperity, the tech crackdown, et cetera. I mean, he was juggling a lot of balls. And I thought, well, okay, once growth sells, he's gonna drop all those balls and just, and just step on the gas. But we haven't seen that. And I think part of it's wrapped into this whole relationship with the West. I mean, I think President Xi is seeing his you know, pseudo-alliance with President Putin and questioning you know, China's role you know, within the, the, the greater global economy. And I get the sense that it's becoming a little bit more inward looking um, and you know, and not plugged into the, the, the global export machine and what have you. So yeah, I think I mean, at the margin, that's obviously you know, negative for not only Asia with the all the supply chains and what have you, but as as pointed out earlier, you know, the LATAM and the commodity exporters are are, are going to have a tougher time. Uh, I have to agree. That, you know, this is a really really tough time for emerging markets. I mean, again, global growth is slowing. Uh, I still haven't thrown the towel in on the U.S. recession. Uh, I think the economy can keep going for at least the next twelve to eighteen months, but after that, it becomes cloudy. Um, but, you know, listen, think, think about this. The ECB hasn't even started tightening yet. So we are closer to the beginning of this global tightening cycle than towards the end. And we've never seen such a coordinated removal of liquidity, interest rate hikes, uh, quantitative tightening, et cetera. We've never seen something on the scale before. And at, to me, EM risk was one of the greatest beneficiaries of this. And now sort of we're seeing the flip side of that. And so it's going to be very, very tough. I, I don't envy the policymakers uh, in most of the emerging markets because they are fighting the high inflation as well as a slowing growth. Um, but I think when push comes to shove, they, I, I, think, I think I get the sense that the tone of this panel I agree with is that most of the policymakers are air on fighting inflation. I mean, they've seen high inflation in the past. They don't want to get let that get out of hand. And if they have to bite the bullet you know, for a few years in terms of slower growth, uh, then so be it. But it, it's, you know, I've been you know, pretty negative on EM for a while and it, it, I don't see any let up. Um, you know, maybe as, as we point out, you know, maybe when we start to see the end of the Fed tightening cycle, as I said, I don't think it's, it's clear yet. Um, so it's gonna be pretty rocky, six to nine months at least.
1: Wow, well, I hate to pour fuel on the fire, but you know, EM public debt has surged to 66% of GDP from 59% in 2019. We all know it's rising interest rates, weaker currencies, below trend of GDP growth. These debt obligations are gonna be really, really challenging to service if when you are right. And you know, we are closer to the beginning than the end here, Luis, you know, we've seen some of the impact of this in places like Sri Lanka in Pakistan and Tunisia most recently, Um, curious to hear your thoughts, you know, I mean, are we um, on the brink of something, you know, sinister here, more disastrous than we can even envision? I mean, are we going to see a slew of social uh, you know, unrest and political crises emerging across the EM complex? And if so, you know, what are the hotspots? What really stands out to you?
2: Well, I I would say that, uh, you know, hard currency debt, even though it's actually underperformed uh, local markets, given the performance of EMFs that I mentioned before, uh, there's probably, you know, you have to kind of separate the various buckets. Uh, You know, it's not a single solid block uh, here and identify maybe some different dynamics and and potentially some pockets of uh, of value. when you look at, the, of course, the more distressed assets, right? We have 14 countries trading above a thousand basis points, several like two or three thousand basis points. So, uh, if, we, if you take a, an average price for those that are, you know, quote unquote distressed uh, uh, sovereigns, you know, probably prices are uh, averaging, you know, uh, 30, 35 uh, uh, cents on the dollar. When you go to the other extreme investment grade countries and you look at the long end because of the treasury moves and because of the uh, obviously, flight to quality and the, uh, 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 the repricing of uh, risky assets—they are actually trading in the in the mid 60s. So there's been quite a bit of there's let's say quite a bit of risk premium already in, in both of the extremes. The problem is a little bit more the 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 middle where there's probably more repricing to take place. Particularly if the Fed keeps uh, uh, keeps tightening, and of course, you know, more and more countries start to hit a wall, they start to have a, a, a problems coming coming to market. So, so there's a bit of a barbell strategy that we've been recommending. You know, like favoring the extremes. Uh, you know, for example, we are you know speaking to specific cases. You mentioned Sri Lanka. You know, Sri Lanka, we're actually thinking that you know the recovery value maybe it's in the mid 40s and it's trading around the high 30s. So, we're actually overweight Sri Lanka. Maybe this is a heroic. Uh, <laughs> Recommendation, but uh, you know, part of the issue is that, uh, you know, the Sri Lankans, if you speak to uh you, you hear them uh, talk, you know, they would like to spare the local currency bonds, the local, uh, from, from a restructuring and just rely on on external debt, but the reality is that two thirds of their interest uh, payments that they have uh, in their, in their budget is actually local market. So I think that when they get to negotiate with the IMF and reach an agreement, the IMF is going to push to restructure everything. So not that, that, meaning that sustainability is not not only going to be accomplished by restructuring external debt and sparing the local currency bonds. So we think that, from that perspective, there's probably a bit of a higher recovery than what uh, uh, markets are, are discounting right now. Uh, the other cases, you know, Tunisia, uh, Pakistan, honestly, a little bit more complicated. Uh, Tunisia, it's, it's, not not just economics, but it's, uh, it's politics. You, know, you, you have to have a, a stable government to negotiate an agreement. There, uh, they keep servicing debt. Uh, actually, the hard currency debt is not much of the issue. Uh, they, they rely a lot more on, on multilateral debt. And uh, they, so, best to to uh, see whether if in the end they do reach an, an understanding with the IMF. You know, the window is not too 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 big for that uh, agreement to to be uh, to be reached. Uh, whether the IMF does ask for. Uh, uh, creditors, private creditors to be, uh, to be bailed in. In the case of Pakistan, you know, it's a little bit of the same situation. Uh, uh, You know, bonds are still trading in the uh, 70s, 80s. Uh, You have a, a, uh uh situation as well of you know high reliance on on uh, on, on multilaterals uh, but you know this is an imf program that at this stage has very little credibility to the extent that you know fiscal targets keep revi- being revised uh, all the time so you know not, not very confidence in, inspiring so uh um, probably you know we're gonna see uh these countries continuing to trade on, on at these press levels for uh, for some time
1: Well, I mean, Luis, you can't talk about the IMF without talking about Argentina. Claudio, you know, talk to me. I mean, it's been some time since we've had to look at it. Obviously, low coupons. Obviously, there's talk of, a you know, continued restructuring, you know, but then again, you know, when you think about recoveries, you know, there's quite a few of your peers have been pounding the table saying, you know, the expected recovery rate on these bonds is supposed to be higher. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. You know, what's the update on Argentina? I mean, is it coming back online? How's it weathering the storm that, uh, that we're currently facing? Well, Argentina is interesting because you leave Argentina for two weeks and everything
4: changed and you leave Argentina for 10 years and nothing changed. <laughs> uh, so I, I think we are, uh, I mean, obviously the economy is under a lot of pressure. Um, inflation is uh, is moving higher. Uh, there is no clear plan uh, to tackle inflation, and all the imbalances that you have in, in Argentina and and then you are having uh, in the horizon uh presidential election next year um with the ruling coalition and the opposition very fragmented so it's it's not clear who's going to lead uh the the, the options uh on the ruling coalition or or the opposition yes it's too early to to call for uh for the regime change if you want um so probably we're gonna we gonna see uh, more pressure in the short term. Um, I agree that already bond prices are are pricing in um, a, a very nasty scenario. But the question is that technicals are, are not great for Argentina. So every time you have a rally of 3 4 $5, someone is showing up to sell. Yeah. Um, so, so in that sense, it's very, it's very difficult to to bet on a regime change yet. Probably, it's going to be more the trade of uh, of the beginning of next year when we have more more clarity on the on the political front. Um, but whoever wins in Argentina, even if it's a more market friendly uh, uh, administration, it's going to be an extremely tough time putting the house in order, uh, and and they're going to have to take uh, very tough decisions up front. Um, gradualism, the way the macro administration tried uh, last time will not work. Um, probably anything related to the macro administration will not start with the benefit of the doubt. They started last time. So all, 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 the, uh, uh, all the time or, or, or all the deadlines that uh, you might figure out at the beginning of the next administration will accelerate and you're going to have to do a lot in the first uh, two quarters uh, to, to change expectations and, and put the house in order. Maybe sit with the IMF again and, and, and rethink the program. Um, maybe sit with the bondholders and rethink the whole, the whole uh, uh, structure of maturities, but, uh, but it's still too early to tell. Um, um, things are still very fluid and and just to to finish my thoughts on Argentina, as I said before, probably things will get worse before before they get better, unfortunately.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, look, I mean, sorry to pick on Argentina. I mean, there are plenty of economies operating out along the frontier. Caesar, that you know, jump out of people. I just had one investor um, come to me and you know, was pounding the table on you know, Ukraine GDP warrants, when and if they emerge from this. You know, I'm curious. What else stands out to you out along the frontier of emerging markets? I mean, is there, are there any opportunities and, and, you know, where should investors be kind of looking, uh, looking to scratch the surface of that?
0: Yeah. So I'd I'd actually start with a general, you know, with a general comment and uh, Luis stole my stat on the, you know, number of credits that are trading in distress. Usually you would look at that and say, Hey, actually, maybe, maybe it's time to buy. We might be nearing a a, a bottom. Um, But I think there are a couple of problems. The first is just broadly across EM. I don't think we're early cycle. I think we look late cycle. That's certainly true in terms of inflation. Also, current account balances have actually eroded quite a bit, um, which is a very important signal, you know, to me. So, I don't think it's as easy as okay. Are, are there some distressed opportunities that are trading very wide, and we can expect to hold them? Because I think things can get you know worse before they get better. You know, Damon, you made the point about debt uh, kind of uh, growing. Well, how do we think of it? On the one hand, again, you've had a number of, of places become distressed. There hasn't been big contagion. You could say that's kind of a positive thing in terms of the functioning of markets. I'd also note the markets that have distressed credits also have relatively cheap equities, and those are moving in fairly you know, clean tandem. Again, not suggested that there's a breakdown in kind of market function. But ultimately, the problem we're facing is we have a lot of debt and the forecast for growth even for next year, 2023, when maybe we can start to recover, we have a 3.1% GDP growth number for EMX China. That's the lowest number in the past decade outside of recessions. So again, late cycle, not a not a very strong recovery to buy into. I think things can get worse before they get better. What that means is, it's very much a trading environment. So there are going to be opportunities in the frontier, in the distressed area. We're coming from a period of high macro vol. We had a big CPI print a couple of weeks ago. You could easily get a soft print in another few weeks, which can move the market pretty pretty aggressively. But I think we're in a trading environment and it's not the time to look at value and then you know buy in and, and think you can hold it for six or 12 months for a good investment. I think things get, get, get a bit worse here. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, let's move even further up along the high yield spectrum. I mean, let's think about, you know, some of these other more developed emerging market economies like South Africa, Colombia, Dirk, you know, let's talk about some Egypt, you know, I mean, obviously there are other economies that are a little bit lower down the spectrum, like Nigeria and Kenya that are going to have to devalue their currencies, probably pretty aggressively. You know, there's a lot of issues that investors need to kind of deal with and contend with, you know, how do you approach that segment? Is it time to, to, to look at that segment? Uh, through you know, the lens of perhaps them being value opportunities given the amount of risk premium that's been priced in or should investors are investors right indeed to continue to sit on their hands because as fund flows point out, we have not seen much interest in EM local or for that matter lately EM credit in quite some time. so you' know, just curious to hear your thoughts there. you know? I mean what pockets of value exist, if any? Yeah, let, to, before addressing that, let me just make two
3: very quick comments on China because I wasn't able to jump in and discuss on China. Sorry, so I must have missed you. That's my fault. <laughs> uh, and the, the first one being that um, it's obviously true that they underwhelm expectations of easing, but they're easing, right? No one else is. I mean, the U.S. is actively trying to tighten the financial conditions. The Chinese want to ease financial conditions, maybe not as fast as you would like. Um, but uh, at least it's moving in the right direction. So, and, and you can see it in, in uh, price performance, right? So equities outperformed U.S. equities uh, fairly aggressively. Actually, most equities fairly aggressively in the last couple of weeks, and even credit um, is so bumped out that it outperformed U.S. credit uh, for some time now. So it's a, I, I think the, the Chinese negativity. Is not necessarily wrong, but against something like the US, it's not that clear that it should underperform from here. The, the second quick point uh, on China is that, um, you know, so China is maybe as weak as ever, and commodity prices are at the highs or close to the highs, uh, some of them, or as the others were at the highs, but China was already very weak. So um, there is a question I mean, if commodity prices are strong, even with a weak China, does Latin really care? Right. In some sense, you know, we I think the price effect is is just extremely important. And so there is a question to me. Um, and there's a big question mark if they can continue. But if commodity price continues, seems to me um time will be just fine, um, even with the weaker China going forward. Um, but coming to your actual question, um the, the frontier markets are are actually if you look at the performance of the index, the frontier index is pretty much trading exactly as the benchmark for YAM, just with higher volatility, obviously, but both upside and downside. And um, and what happens both at peaks and troughs is that there's often a slight delay. Now that could just be price discovery, right? That um, that maybe some prices are stale that go into the index and so forth. And I'm not sure about that. But, but certainly if you look at it the long-term, I mean, if you're not positive on the asset class overall, you're not making money in Frontier either. They're really very highly correlated. And of course, there are always, there's always one or two countries that touch uh, powerful powerful credit, maybe it can decouple, but, um, but uh, it's, it's really tricky because you have the wind blowing uh, in your face basically. Um, the, the one point I would make is that you know, for investors to pick up credit in a situation where recession is coming, um, you know, you want to see defaults, right? You want to see stress before you pick it up. And you do see more stress in, than in the US so far. So there is a question whether, you know, maybe in outright terms, credit is still going to be difficult in the M, um, but it might be more difficult in US uh, credit, right? And so there, there could be, um, if on structures it right, a bit of a spread compression trade, but certainly it's um, it's unlikely to be the time for outright longs.
1: You know, when we can't we can't end this conversation um, and really not talk about emerging markets without talking about geopolitics. And clearly, as we've just seen, Colombia, Gustavo Petro, the latest in the populist wave to kind of hit Latin America. You know, curious. You know, I mean, how does this impact investability? In addition to all the things we've just discussed here, and more importantly, you know, how should investors be thinking about positioning in the politics of the moment with all that's going on in the world? Yeah, so to me, you know, for
5: I think for many of us long-term emerging market observers, you know, it's it's such a full circle, right? We had, uh, you know, Latin America emerge from the, the failed policies of the '70s and '80s, and and really get firmly on the path of, of sort of orthodoxy. You know, had a great couple of runs, but you know, it, it's the whole circle is going back again. Obviously, the the, the sort of um, uh, IMF, World Bank model, you know, left many behind. And that's obviously, we, we saw the first inkling is that I think in Chile first with the, the protests about the uh, tuition, you know, years ago. But that sort of lit the spark. I guess I'm sort of, to me, it's I'm sort of glass half full is that, you know, these are issues that obviously need to be addressed. But I think, you know, if you're in Chile, Colombia, Peru, you look across the other side of China and no one wants to become the next Venezuela, right? I mean, that's sort of the, uh, the end game for for failed policies that that's I think serves as a really pretty strong warning to okay you can you can you know maybe perhaps follow a Brazilian model or, or somewhat you know uh, you know more inclusive model, but um, you know you can't go uh, full Chavez, right? And so that to me at least I hope stands as a warning. You know, so we'll see some more populist uh, policies in, in most of these countries, um, you know, more r- r- world thr- distribution. Uh, more more clarity I guess on, on social issues but I, I, at this point I, I think it's, I'm not gonna be pessimistic and say you know this is the sort of the end of the the, the, you know, the IMF sort of model of, of globalization and, and, uh, and orthodoxy but uh, fingers crossed maybe I'm talking my book here but uh, you know we've all seen how these things can end and uh, you know I think that's again a very stark warning to, to any of these policymakers. I'm curious what our what my Latin American counterparts here think I'm sort of <laughs> looking at it from somewhere, you know, sort of, you know
1: 30,000 well, feet up. But I'm curious what, what you guys think. You, you asked for it, and you shall receive. Claudio, please, you know, enlighten us. You know, talk to us about what just happened in Colombia. Talk to us about your thoughts with Chile's referendum, you know, everything that's going on with Lula in Brazil. Give us the rundown. Well, uh, one,
4: one, one very uh, clear common factor that we've been seeing is that uh, every single incumbent that had to do with COVID didn't do well either uh by himself or 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 whoever candidate they supported in, in presidential elections, right? So we are seeing, and it happened to be that most of them were probably on, on the right side of the spectrum, and, and that's why we had these radical changes. Second, in every single election around the world, and this is not an emerging market issue uh only, we have uh increased polarization. So center politicians disappear from the map, they are not credible anymore, and in order to become credible you have to go to the extremes, uh, and that creates volatility in itself. But on the other hand, we had a lot of um, so-called populist uh, um, leaders that surprise on the positive side in, in some aspects, uh, especially on the fiscal side in many cases. So. Um, just let's recall what we thought uh, the AMLO administration uh, was going to be and, and, and what it was in terms of fiscal dynamics, not in many other dimensions, but in terms of fiscal dynamics. Uh, is that enough um, to to bring some reassurance to investors? Well, it depends. Uh, in, in terms of uh, foreign direct investment, probably not enough because investment, um, despite the, the fact that uh, AMLO did quite well on the on the fiscal front okay. over the years, investment has been collapsing in, in Mexico. So um, I think they're going to have to do more uh, of the homework in order to convince investors that um, they can come up with an inclusive model in which they deal with the issues that people um, are concerned about, like income inequality, redistribution, et cetera, without jeopardizing long-term growth. It seems to be that those trade-offs are not well addressed yet, and it's the challenge. You just cannot ignore people and say, no, this is not what you need. I mean, otherwise you're not gonna win the election away. So people are asking for that. So you need to address those issues. But the question is, uh, what price are you willing to pay for, for that? And I don't think it's an issue on the emerging markets only. It's an issue here. It's an issue in Europe. It's an issue everywhere. Um, and that's why the world is probably more complicated today than than, than 10, 15 years ago. And and I don't know if it's going to be even more complicated fifteen years from now. But but that's that's what we need to uh, to deal with. Um, I I think in the case of petrol, the market will see um, first of all who's uh, going to be the finance minister. Um, for instance, the case of Chile, uh, the election of the finance minister brought some reassurance to the markets. So something like that will happen with, uh, with Colombia. Uh, Petro will be tested in terms of the uh, economic team uh, he chooses. And then what are the first measures that he will pursue that probably he will try to, to go on, on, on measures that uh, does not have um, uh, or need a Congress approval, like increasing minimum wages, um, freezing again or rolling or, or over the freezing of uh, energy prices, stuff like that. So he will be tested as any other president in the first 100 uh, days and, and, and uh, let's see what he has to, to deliver at, at the beginning. But if, if you take a look at what happened to Boric, um, or the Boric administration, um, popularity decreased significantly in, in the first uh, few months. So uh, it's going to be a, a big test. Is that uh, uh, a preview of what can happen in Brazil? It's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. It's going to be in Brazil a very, very close election. Um, and, and I don't think I would, I would claim that uh, we are not trading the Brazil election yet. There are too many things going on uh, globally to trade the Brazil election. So Brazil election will be traded two months before the election or even less. Um, but, uh, but it's going to be a, a, a close one too.
1: Well, well, Claudio, you make an interesting point there. You said it's happening here, there, everywhere. You know, we've only got a minute left. You know, Luis, you know, I began with you. I'm going to end with you. You know, we've seen some other elections. You know, we've seen the Philippines. We've seen South Korea. And going forward, as we look ahead to 2023, I have yet to really look at the um, election calendar. I'm just curious if you could just give us a quick glance, you know, what stands out to you? I mean, obviously, South Korea was a bit of a surprise. Some have claimed to be a little bit more of a populist leaning. You know, Philippines... Bong bong. I mean, it's anyone's guess where they went, really. But you know, as we look into the future, you know, this kind of populist shift. I mean, is that something you expect to kind of expand outside of you know Latin America and really take hold in places like Asia or uh, or the EMEA region?
2: I would say that, uh, well, certainly events this year have reminded investors that, uh, you know, politics and geopolitics matter, right? And when we look at what happened in, in Russia, we haven't even touched upon planet. Uh, <laughs> you know, bonds went down from 120 to 20 within two days when the invasion started. So, you know, with a very strong balance sheet, uh, $600 billion of reserves, 16% of that to GDP, etc. So uh, it is a reminder that, you know, it's not only about, you know, Capacity to pay, a willingness to pay, you know, geopolitics, politics also do matter. Uh, you mentioned many countries that are going through elections, and, uh, you know, it's going to be part of uh, our everyday uh, uh, monitoring or taking a look at uh, what are the policy intentions. The one thing that I would say, though, and maybe just to end on, uh, you know, uh, maybe look, let's, let's for some silver linings here is that. Uh, There's still a, there has been year-to-date a stark division uh, uh, between the performance of net commodity exporters in emerging markets and net commodity importers. Many countries in Latin America that are going through political uh, uh, cycle generating uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, these days, are actually on the right side of this of, of this divide, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, when uh, there's more clarity as to uh, you know what uh, all these political developments mean and what the political intentions are, you know, it is possible. And again, I'm not uh, advocating you know to uh, to establish long at stage, but it is possible that in America is actually the region that starts to come back first. First, because uh, there's going to be a tightening cycle that is going to be more mature and maybe end earlier than in EMEA or in Asia, where it's only just starting. And second, because you know you will have uh, some of these uncertainties coming from politics, uh, 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 leading to more a bit more of a, a clearer picture. Maybe this is more a 2023. So we started. I remember 2022 telling investors, you know, to get uh, to outperform in 2022, you had to get Latin America right. Of course, uh, you know, inflation threw uh, uh, cold water on that premise, and then all the political developments. But maybe that's a premise again for 2023, right? Uh, you know, there is a possibility, or maybe the need. Together Latin America, right? Because that may be the first region to start turning the tide in terms of, you know, going from uh, paying to receive, etc.
1: Luis, thank you, gentlemen. Win, uh, uh, Caesar, Claudio, uh, Dirk. Thank you all so much for taking the time to join us here today, and thank you to our audience for listening. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much. Take good care.